You are listening to audio from The Creek Church. If you would like more information about The Creek, please be sure to visit our website at thecreekfw.com. Man, it's been an exciting couple weeks for me. I, I know a couple weeks ago we had Serve Sunday which was awesome. Thank you for that. I didn't get to tell you that last week because last week Alec was, was preaching because Heather and I took the weekend off so we could get some honeydews done. And uh, then this week I got to go on the men's camp out. Where are my men at, man? Dude. Oh. Uh, so meat, fest, and, and ultimate and creativity. I'm just saying we, we had the most fun you can have and there was no alcohol involved. We invented a new sport. Night skeet shooting, glow-in-the-dark skeet. If you want pictures or you want a story, see me in the comments afterwards. It was 100% safe, ladies. I'm the pastor. I was leading them. Everything was good. Um, <laughs> don't. Don't. Anyway, if you got your Bible, I'm just going to go on with this. If you got your Bible, go to Luke chapter 23. Uh, last weekend, Heather and I were, were doing some stuff around the house because... Uh, We've let some things be delayed because we don't like yard work, either one of us. And so uh, there were some overgrown trees and shrubs, and we had to mulch and all that stuff. And so, you know, it's that time of year. You know, you got to get it done. And so we, we spent all weekend working on these things, these projects. Then we sat back and admired our work. We're like, we did it. We accomplished. I mean, high five, baby, we did it. And you just look and like, well, look what we've done. And then we just started reflecting on a lot of projects that we've gotten to do in our, in our house and in the, then in our marriage. And our marriage is strong enough and stable enough and, and good enough that we can do home improvement projects without the threat of divorce now, which is awesome. And uh, so it's, it's taken us about 24 years to get there, but, but just keep pressing in, guys, keep pressing in. But we were just thinking about all these projects we got to do, and we just started feeling a sense of satisfaction. Like, there's so many things we've been able to do just because, you know, we just get in and get it done, and we look back, and, man, we, we were able to do that. And, and what we're going to talk about today is the cross is that way. The cross is a finished work, that we can look at the cross as a finished work and, and, and understand that it was all accomplished there, and that Jesus is seated right now at the right hand of the Father in glory, and, and he is saying, that's the work. It is done. And then it does a work in us that begins a life in us and then begins to move and work in our life in ways that we couldn't have even think of before. And, and, and we're, as we're going through the, the track of Luke here, we're, we're looking at, at, at Jesus' death and burial today. And, and I want you to do something for me. I, wanna, I want you to take Hollywood Jesus and I want you to just slide him out of the way, okay? Because most of the time when we talk about the crucifixion and, and death and burial of Jesus, we kind of go Hollywood on it because we've all seen either a show or a movie, and that kind that tends to shape our perspective of what's going on in this moment. So just set that aside, and I want you to let the context and the truth of what's happening in the in the scripture let that start to form the pictures that you work through when you think about this experience with the cross being a finished work. And so, so we know that Jesus was was crucified for our sins. He was laid in a tomb, and then he was resurrected. Spoiler Spoiler alert, I'm preaching about that next week, just in case you didn't know. You know, so I really thought about throwing a curveball because, you know, we all know people that go, oh, every time I go to church, you just talk about money. I thought about doing a money message on Easter and just like doing the first like two minutes, a money message, and like, no, nah, I'm just kidding, y'all, psych, and then go into this, but I'm not going to do that. I won't play with your emotions that way. That's just the way my mind works. So anyway, verse 44, it was now... 
about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour while the sun's light failed. And so, so timeline of this, uh, sixth hour is about noon. So, so from noon to three, there's darkness over the land. This is not a, a solar eclipse that's happening, that happens to be happening at the same time as the resurrection. I believe what's going on is, is you've got the creator on the cross, and the creation is mourning what's happening. Because Jesus, Colossians teaches us that Jesus is, is, is the one, man. He's the man. That all creation, all things were created by him, for him, and through him. And so all of creation is seeing what, what they were created by. And Jesus is hanging there, and they're mourning. And the, the, it's, it's beginning to close down. And, and so even creation is mourning what's going on. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. This curtain was a, was a veil or a curtain that would separate in the temple the most holy place of God. So in the center of the, the, the Jewish temple, you would, have, you would have a place that there was the most holy place. It's where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and it's where the presence of God was. And, and only a certain time, certain times a year, the chief priest could go in on behalf of the people. The chief priest would have to go in completely clean. If he was unclean in any way, then immediately he was killed. He, was, he died in the presence of a holy God. And so what's happening on the cross is, is, is it's dark. There, there, there's just, man, it's just, there's a blackout happening because creation is just going, that's our creator. And, and, and they're, they're killing him. And so their creation's mourning. The temple, it, the curtain is torn from the top to the bottom, not from the bottom to the top. It wasn't man's attempt to get to God. It was God's work saying, my presence is being open for you. That's where we get our confidence from in Hebrews chapter 10, where it says that we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. There's no other way that we can come into the presence of a holy God without the blood of Jesus, without the finished work of the cross, we can't come into that presence. And what God is showing us by this, by this, this curtain being torn was that my presence is being made available to you because the sacrifice has been made. The work is finished and you can be in my presence and this relationship, this reconciliation can happen. Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. This, this was the final statement that Jesus made on the cross. When you read the other gospel accounts, they share with you other final statements. It's kind of this series of last words of Jesus. And right before Jesus spoke this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he said, it is finished. In our language, finished means like I finished the yard or I finished cooking, I finished cleaning, I finished the race, I finished this. When Jesus was speaking, what he said was one word, tetelestai. And tetelestai, for those that heard him, would have been perplexed because tetelestai is a financial term. It's an acknowledgement of a debt that's been satisfied. So the way it'd work for us is like when you write that last check for the car payment, and you're doing the victory dance. You're like, I, I own my own car now. In the memo section, you write to tell us <laughs> It's finished. My youngest daughter's graduating from UNT in a couple weeks. I don't owe anything on her college uh, uh, education anymore. When she graduates, I'm doing the Tetelestai dance, baby. I'm like, I don't owe anything for your school. It is finished. That's what Jesus is saying. The debt has been satisfied. What is the debt? It's our sin. 
that our sin creates a penalty. It creates a debt that we can't pay. And the way he paid for it once and for all was through his blood on the cross. It is finished. I have paid for it and it does not have to be paid again. You ever have that where you have something on auto draft and you're finished paying for it and you forget to turn off the draft and they take the money again? You're like, no, 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 uh uh uh. It's finished. Means we can stop trying to pay for our own sin and allow the finished work of the cross, finished work of what Jesus did by being the sacrifice for our sin to be that final payment. And there's some, some, some people and groups of people around the cross that I want us to, I want us to take notice of. In, in, in verse 47, it says, now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. The centurion was a Roman soldier. He would have command over 100 troops, and he was there to oversee the execution of, of those that were being crucified that day. And as he's watching these things happen, his response. So, so think about think about everything that's going on. He's standing there overseeing the execution, and, and it's dark. And so at noon, it's dark. It goes dark, and at three o'clock, Jesus shouts out, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And he dies. He gives up his life. He gives up his spirit in the Father's hands. It's to fulfill what Jesus said: "No one takes my life. I lay it down to my own accord." Now, this would have been been puzzling to the to the soldier because. He had overseen executions before. The Romans had mastered the art of execution. And as he's watching this going on, there's some things that are happening. It's dark. This man just yelled. And then Matthew tells us that there was an earthquake that happened. And and everything's going on, all this activity. And for the soldier, he he knows this, that, that for six hours on the cross is unusual for someone. Most of the people who were crucified lasted days. And they were too weak even after six hours to speak. They struggled to breathe. The way they would be able to draw breath on the cross, their hands are nailed to the beam. Their feet are nailed to the beam. They would have to push up with their legs to to expand their lungs to be able to breathe. That's why when they got tired of waiting around, on this day they broke their legs so they would go ahead and die before the Passover. Jesus gave up his spirit. His legs did not have to be broken, fulfilling prophecy that not a bone will be broken in, in our Savior. And he's thinking, this, that, that, that's weird because he has enough strength. He has enough strength to yell out, and then he dies. And his response was he praised God because he said, surely this man was innocent. Other gospel accounts say truly he was the son of God. This man recognized his innocence and his lordship. And then it says there were crowds of people around. All the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, they'd come to see a scene. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home beating their breasts. So they're walking home. This is a sign of conviction. I'm reminded of of Jesus acknowledging with the disciples in the temple when the Pharisee, the self-righteous man, comes in and he walks right to the front of the temple and he walks right by a tax collector in the back because he's too ashamed to come to the front and, and he, he starts praying, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner, like this tax collector. And Jesus says, look at the tax collector. He's beating his chest. He said, have mercy on me, God. I'm a sinner, have mercy on me. That the people who came just to see somebody die end up leaving convicted 
And then it says his acquaintances, his friends, and all the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. These women, what I think is interesting, they're standing at a distance, but if you look at verse 55, it's the same women. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. These women were the first one at the tomb on resurrection day. And so you've got a lot of activity happening around the death of Jesus. But all the while, Jesus knows the work is finished. And then in verse uh, 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. So this man, Joseph, was a part of the Jewish council. He was part of the Jewish ruling party. And he had a friend named Nicodemus. And Luke does not mention Nicodemus. The gospel of John mentions Nicodemus. And so Joseph goes to Pilate and he says, can we take him down and let him be buried? It says that Joseph did not consent to the decision for the execution of Jesus. He was part of the party. He was part of the leadership, the council that condemned Jesus to death, but he was not there. And then he brings his friend Nicodemus. You might have met Nick in, in John chapter three. He's also a teacher, a Pharisee, and part of the council. He comes to Jesus at night, and he says, Jesus, I know, I know you're a good teacher, and I, but I wanna know what do I do to get eternal life? Because he knows that religion isn't working for him. And Jesus says, well, Nicodemus, you must be born again. He said, well, there was a whole context of conversation but ultimately, Jesus said, spirit has to give birth to spirit, that when you believe in the one that God sent, then you won't perish, but we'll have everlasting life. So these two men come to Pilate, asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb, cut out in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of the preparation and the Sabbath was beginning the women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandments. So, so Joseph and Nicodemus, they, they, they take Jesus off the cross and they go and they lay him in a tomb where no one had yet been laid. Jesus receives a proper burial. Crucifixion victims did not receive a burial. They would be thrown out in the garbage dump outside of the city. Jesus would refer that to that place a couple times in his teachings, calling it Gehenna, that outside of the city where the trash was, where the, where the filth was, there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. There was fires burning people's trash. That's where the crucifixion victims would be thrown. Our Savior was not thrown on the garbage heap. He was given the proper burial. And then he rested on the Sabbath. He was in the tomb on the Sabbath. I think it's really interesting when you parallel creation, what's going on. In Genesis chapter two, verse one through three, we see that God created the world in six days and he, he steps back on the seventh. It is good and he rests, he takes a Sabbath. He institutes for us the ability to take rest. And then we have our savior on a cross in six hours. He finishes the work of the new creation. The new creation is our salvation, our hope of forgiveness and eternal life. That therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Six hours, he completes the new creation. And then on the Sabbath, he rests. 
Jesus is in the tomb on the Sabbath. His body is there. Where is he in this? Where's, where is Jesus? Body, bodily, physically wrapped in linen. But he said, where, he's in heaven. He says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And there's some things we need to understand about what's going on in this finished work. The first thing is, is that the penalty for, for sin is dead. Jesus did not die for his sins. He died for our sins. Our sin carries a penalty. The wages of sin is death. Jesus uh, took that on us. And the penalty is dead because Jesus is fully alive. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. On, on Easter Sunday, he walked out of that tomb victoriously. He appeared to the disciples. He appeared to witnesses. He spent 40 days on earth. Is documented. And he's teaching and he's preparing the disciples. And then he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Holy Spirit comes and the church just fires off. And Jesus is fully alive, but the penalty that we deserve for our sin has been paid. He took that on himself. The penalty is dead. The weight of our condemnation has been lifted. Condemnation, we've got to understand this. The enemy, there's an enemy that is constantly condemning us. He's accusing us before the Father. He's always going before God going, did you see what your son did? Did you see what your daughter did? You ever have that parent that always tells you what your kid is doing wrong? Now, don't, don't, don't walk up, that parent's the enemy. Don't say that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't cross some lines here, but understand this. We have an accuser, his name is the devil, who always goes before the Father. And says, can you believe what your son is doing? And, and we feel this condemnation. We start thinking about our past. And we, we all have failures. We all make mistakes. And we have these failures in our past. And when we think about those, we start feeling guilty and shameful about them. And all of a sudden, we just get wrapped up and we feel condemned. And like, you're right. How could God love me because of what I've done in my past? Remember, the penalty for that sin is dead. Let me give you some filters to work through that. There's two things. There's condemnation, which comes from the enemy, and there's conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit. So when you start thinking about that past thing and you start feeling guilty, ask yourself this. Have I come before in the presence of God and asked him for the grace to forgive me for what I did in that? Because when we do, grace covers those sins. God says, when you ask me, I'm the one who's faithful. I'm the one who's just, and I forgive. And when he forgives, he does something with our sin. He throws it as far as the east is from the west. It's a mathematical term. If you have a starting point and you have a line going each direction with an arrow, that's an infinite line. They will never touch. They will never come back around. God says, when I forgive you, I forgive you. And so if you're thinking about that again, filter it this way. Have I asked for the grace of God to cover that sin? I haven't, then I'm gonna ask for the grace of God to cover that sin. If I have, then you need to recognize something. The enemy is bringing condemnation. It's not the Holy Spirit bringing conviction. And you need to learn how to discern those voices because the Holy Spirit's not gonna come at you and go, I can't believe what you did. How could you even think you're a Christian by the way you live? I, how could you think you're a Christian by the way you talked to those people the other day? How could you think the Holy Spirit does not operate that way? The Holy Spirit is gentle and works in us and brings us. And it's more like, hey, hey, I love you. And, and, and there's some things here that, that's hindering the depth of relationship that God wants with you. 
And if you would, let's just go to the throne. Let's go, let's go confidently because the blood of Jesus, the finished work of the cross, let's get in there. Let's confess this. Let's repent of this. Let's let God's grace cover this and cast it away. And let's keep on rolling, baby. That's how the Holy Spirit works. The enemy's gonna come in and go, there's no way God loves you. God gave up on you a long time ago. That's condemnation. What we have to understand is the truth of God's word and the finished work of the cross cross makes this declaration. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's lifted. The fear of judgment is calmed. So many people don't know the truth about what happens when we die. It's just interesting. And I don't expect non-Christians, I mean, people who don't know the truth have their ideas of like, well, if my life is more good than bad, then I go to heaven if there's a heaven, if there's something out there. And it amazes me. What amazes me is not that people who don't know the truth think that, but people who come to church, people who know the truth. We have people who say, I follow Jesus, I'm a Christian, and we live in fear about judgment. There's no fear of judgment. I mean, we think it's some cosmic game show that when, when I take my last breath on earth, I'm gonna be in the presence of God and it's gonna be like some cosmic game show and the enemy's gonna come out and there's this big scale with all these lights on it and the enemy's gonna come out with a wheelbarrow and go, here's all the bad stuff Matt's done in his life and then he's gonna dump that and I'm gonna look at that and like, that's it? No, he goes, no, there's a dump truck coming in. Beep, 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 dumps it and all of a sudden the scale just goes through the floor and then I'm looking at God like, have I done enough good? And he's going to go, well, I can find this, I can find this. And it's not even moving the scale. And we live in fear because we think that's what's going to happen. The, the fear of judgment is calmed in the finished work of the cross because what happens in the cross when I submit to Jesus as my Savior and I accept his sacrifice in my life and his blood covers my life, I'm a son. I'm a child of God. I have two beautiful daughters that I love dearly and deeply, and there is nothing that they could ever say to me or do to me to change this truth. They were born as my children, and they will remain my children, and I know my kids. When they walk in and I hear their voice, I know that's my my child. So for you that are walking in fear about what happens When I draw my last breath on this side of eternity and I I step into the presence of God, he doesn't go, who are you you now? God does not deal with that. God says, welcome home, son. Psalm 116 says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I'm so glad you're here. My life, if you you try to determine my sainthood based on how much good or how much bad I've done, I, I fail. My status as a saint is by the blood of Jesus and the finished work of the cross that he looks on me and says, you are my beloved. And I don't have any fear of judgment. Yeah, I've got a lot of stuff I'm ashamed of, but I gotta ask for the grace of God to cover that so he forgets it. When I remember it, I can't walk in shame and guilt and fear anymore because the cross has finished that work. And God's love has the final word. We go, well, God, I know that you forgive me, but I just, you know, the enemy's like, no, no, God, God, God can forgive, but he probably won't for you. That's not the final word. God's, the cross stands for eternity as the final word that it is finished. And we get in fights and we get in arguments and we try to get the final, men, I'm just gonna throw us under the bus for a minute, all right? We try to get the final word in an argument. We're just not equipped. 
okay? We're not equipped. There was a couple that was riding in a pickup truck one day, and they'd been arguing and fighting and stuff, and they're driving through the country, and he's like, I'm gonna get her. He looks over, there's pigs in the pasture. He goes, family of yours? He's like, boom. She's like, yep, in-laws. We're just, <laughs> we're just not equipped, guys, okay? So <laughs> God's love has the final word, okay? There is no but. It's God's love has the final word. So what does this mean? And Jesus' final word was this, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What does that mean? I mean, we can know all these things, these truths, but what does it mean to, to bring it home? It means that I can have a relationship. I can have a relationship with God as my Father, not as my judge. This last Monday, I, I was in a courtroom because I, I got called for jury duty. And I'm trying to do my civic duty and I'm sitting there and I just start thanking God because I'm seeing this judge and he's got this authority, he's got this power and he's commanding respect of the courtroom. And I'm, I'm looking at that, I'm going, I'm so grateful that because of the blood of Jesus, I don't have to look at God as judge. I can see him as my father because on Thursday, I rolled up to the men's camp out and my father's sitting there under a tent in the shade and in a chair and he says, pull up a chair, son. Did you have a good trip down? And we have a conversation conversation and we have a relationship. That's what the blood of Jesus, that's what the finished work does. Jesus says, Father, it's relational. Into your hands I commit my spirit. It was Jesus's relationship with the Father that everything he wanted to do was to glorify the Father. That's why he goes to the cross. The relationship that he can have with us through the reconciliation that happens through the blood is what led Jesus to the cross so that we have an experience with God as Father, a redeemed experience as father, not from the baggage that some of you carry and the father wounds and parent wounds, but a redeemed relationship with a holy, loving father. And this relationship has a foundation of trust because God can be trusted in our relationship. He says, Father, into your hands. Jesus knows exactly where to put everything. He knows exactly where to go. Jesus didn't look at, look at trusting his father, didn't look at trusting God as a last resort, but a first response. Too many times we go, well, we've done all we can do. All we can do is trust God. How about the first response? I mean, look at Jesus. He trusted God the Father in his life, in his ministry, and you have him with outstretched arms on the cross, getting ready to breathe his final breath, and he trusts him. He says, I trust you even in my death. I trust you in the most difficult situation I will ever face. When life hands you that difficult situation, how about we say, Father, into your hands, I'm gonna trust you with it. And I'm gonna trust you with it that you will work in me to walk this out, even as difficult as it is, to walk this out in a way that honors you and glorifies you and other people see your finished work of the cross through what I go through. I trust you with it. God can be trusted. His character is trustworthy and God does not change. So if the trajectory starts out trustworthy, it holds that course for all eternity. Maybe we need to set ourselves back on a foundation of trust because we've all been hurt and broken in relationships, but God never fails. And this relationship, because of what Jesus has done, allows us 
to live a life and to have a relationship that's marked by sacrifice and obedience because Jesus models it. Every relationship requires sacrifice. When one person in the relationship stops sacrificing for the relationship, it's only a matter of time before the relationship fails. And we know that that God never fails. And we can do this because we've seen Jesus do it. In Philippians chapter two, this this is what it says of his example. It says that we're to have this same mind, same mind. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, your mind in Christ Jesus. It's a renewed mind. Have this mind among yourselves in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. Here's what all this means. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is saying, you can live this kind of life, this sacrificial life of obedience because I did it for you. Too many times we get wrapped up in that and go, I can't do that because I can't be perfect. Jesus was perfect. Jesus is not saying have a perfect mind among yourselves. Have this mind. Humble yourselves. Put others ahead of yourselves. Humble yourselves. Be obedient to death. What did Jesus say when somebody said, I want to follow you? You want to follow me? It means this. You take up your cross. That's an executionary device. You lay down your life. You deny yourself and you follow me. How does that play out in our life? It's Romans 12, 1 and 2. Be a living sacrifice. Jesus is a living sacrifice. He gave his life on a cross. He was resurrected and raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's been given the name above every name. And he says, you be a living sacrifice. What does that mean? When I get out of bed in the morning, when my, before my feet hit the floor, I'm like, God, today I wanna live this day for you. I sacrifice my desires, my wants, my needs for what you want and for what you're leading in my life. My marriage, God, I wanna sacrifice my selfishness to be selfless so that I can love my wife and that I can show her your glory and your finished work of the cross of how you work in my life. And we continue to live as living sacrifices. And we let the finished work of the cross continue a work in us. For some of you, you've never come to that point of salvation. You've never asked for the work of the cross to change your destiny, to change your eternity, to forgive you, to set you on a path of eternal life. And today's the day you do that. Today's the day that you ask God, forgive me of my penalty for sin. Jesus, I believe that you paid for me and I want you to change me. For some of you, have been a Christian and you just need to let go of shame and guilt and fear and you need to let the work that was starting you get taken back up again because you probably set it off as a project and like, I'll get to that someday. Someday is today. I want you to bow your head and I, I just wanna give you a moment that if, if, if you're ready for that time of salvation, if you're ready to just put it all in his hands, to put your life in there so his finished work begins a work in you, I just want you to say to him, Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe that you took my penalty. 
And I'm asking you, Jesus, to cover me. I'm asking you to make me a new creation. All of the work that you did, would you do that in my life? Save me. Make me your child. I'm forever yours, Jesus. For those of you in this room that that have made a declaration of faith like that in the past, but you've put the remodel on the back burner, today's the day that the work picks back up. And I want you to, I just want you to pray something like this, your work, something like, Jesus, I'm asking you to resume the work that you started in me. Because Jesus, I know the truth of your word when you say you are the author and finisher of my faith and you who began a good work in me will see it to completion. Father, I thank you for the truth of the cross, the finished work of the cross. I thank you that it transforms lives. It transforms families. It transforms communities. It transforms nations. It transforms the world. And it's all for your glory. And so I pray that through the truth of this word, that you are glorified, you are magnified for all time, for the glory of your great name, Jesus, who finished the work. May you finish it in us. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Creek Church. We invite you to listen to other messages on this podcast. Or if you have any questions, you can email us at info at thecreekfw.com.